John, if you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, what would it be? Okay, so my field is social psychology. It's the study of, of almost any social phenomenon. So I would say pick a problem that is intrinsically interesting. See if you can come up with an idea for, for what might be driving it, what might be behind it. And most importantly, see if you can bring in something from your own background experience, or from some other culture, or from some other discipline that allows you to look at it in a new way. If you can see something new where, where hundreds of others have looked at something, that's the path to doing important research that people will notice. Yeah, especially the point about bringing in something from another discipline is, I mean, that, that's a great lever for novelty. We're living in a world now where it was, we suddenly discover the relevance of one discipline to another that for you know, decades past, there was no point of contact, but you know, suddenly mm -hmm. there is. Yeah, no, that's right. So in my own work, I never could have come up with moral foundations theory if I hadn't been a philosophy major undergrad, which got me interested in, in moral psychology and moral judgment. And then I did a postdoc in cultural psychology with Richard Schwader and spent time in India. So it was the combination of, of cultural psychology, philosophy, and psychology that let me look at moral development and moral judgment a little differently um, and take a much more cultural approach. Mm. What, if anything, do you wish you had done differently in your 20s, 30s, or 40s? You can pick a decade. I mean, you know, there are certain the ones that everybody would have about specific times when I, uh, I, I, I either hurt someone's feelings or, or didn't express appreciation. Uh, there are individual uh, actions that I would retract as a, just as a human being. Professionally, um, no, I'm pretty happy with the, with the way things went in that I had a bad period. I had some fear. I had a couple of years where I thought I was never going to make it. Um, I didn't get a job originally. I uh, failed to get a job the first time I was on the job market. And, uh, and then also I came very close to not getting tenure. So my career had a nice trajectory where there was some failure and some fear. Uh, and then things, you know, then things got much better after that. So, you know, I wouldn't want to look back and say, oh, I want to remove all the bad things that happened. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. Similarly, what, what negative experience, one that you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? Oh, I would say my really hard year um, after my first postdoc, the fact that I didn't get a job when I first went on the job market, it made me, uh, it made me more humble. It made me realize I have to just work harder. I have to stick, stick with it. So, so I think that, that really bad year uh, 2000, uh, in 1994 to 1995, uh, I think that really bad year set me up to be more effective as a, as a professor when I did eventually get a job at the University of Virginia. Can you name a, a book that you think everyone should read? Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm -hmm. I think nobody should be allowed on campus or into a company or into any organization until they have read that book. Um, I read that book in grad school, and I had the experience. So uh, Ben Franklin is talked about in the book. And Sam, I got to say, you, me, and Ben Franklin, I'm just guessing about you, but I'm guessing we all have the same problem, which is that many people when we were younger told us we were arrogant know-it-alls that you couldn't possibly argue with because we thought we knew everything. And I don't know, Sam, am I right about that? Is that what people thought of say about you or used to say about you? I'm still getting that from time to time, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. but, so, yeah. <laughs> all right. So um, it's a very common, you know, especially a male pattern um, for you know, analytical males. And um, you know, I get it too from, from time to time still, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. And so especially in our polarized age, especially in an age of call-out culture, uh, if people would just read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, 
you could avoid the great majority of conflicts. And actually what it's really good at, it's really good at turning enemies into friends because you learn how to acknowledge uh, something about what the other person said or did. Uh, and then they come back and acknowledge it about you. And I think I am pretty good at this because I was just thinking the other day, you know, in preparing for our talk today and realizing that, you know, because I used to say you were like my only enemy, like I've never really had an academic enemy. <laughs> and, you know, we were for a while kind of antagonists and, and then we, you know, we, we kind of made up and, you know, now we're, I think we're friends. Yeah. Um, and the same thing happened with Massimo Piliucci. He and mm -hmm. I had an even nastier set of actually. Stories. Actually, he's still my enemy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but well, look, he's you know he's an interesting guy. If you I don't know, try reaching out to him. Okay, I've uh, never met give, him. Give it another try because he you know he and I also uh, sort of you know made up. He had a great conversation. You know, and this is the thing about this human tribalism: we're really good at at doing war, but we're actually pretty good at bearing the hatchet as well. And and often, if you reach out first and just acknowledge something, the other person will reach right back. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. Hmm. Uh, next question. What, what worries you most about our collective future? What worries me most is that while almost all of our problems are solvable, I fear that we are not going to solve a lot of them because of our rising political polarization uh, and rising distrust, uh, all of which preceded social media, but is now greatly amplified on social media. So I do actually fear that the United States may end as a nation. That is, sometime in the next 30 or 40 years, it's at least conceivable that states will secede or that there will be a, a, a necessity of the military to come out and, and put down some unrest. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I do think that democracy is difficult. Democracy, as the Founding Fathers knew, tends to uh, commit suicide. And I think that unless we pay a lot more attention to what we're doing, I fear that our democracy could commit suicide. So I, I think that understanding what's happening to us, understanding rising political polarization, improving our political institutions to make them more trustworthy, less corrupt, um, is an urgent national mission. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds so stark and, and potentially paranoid when you put it that way. But when you think about the fact that we really, really only have two tools by which to get other people to collaborate with us. It's either persuasion or force. And when persuasion begins to reliably fail, when conversations fail in an atmosphere of indissoluble us-them thinking, people begin reaching for weapons. I mean, it's just, that is the, our circumstance. That, that's right. So what is it, what, there's that famous book, of, what is it, Loyalty, Voice, and Exit, something like that, or Exit, Voice, and Loyalty by Albert O. Hirschman. So, uh, yeah, exit is not really a possibility, although who knows, you know, if Trump is reelected and he continues on the course that he's going, there will be secession movements in several states, certainly, I would guess, along the West Coast. So that's just one possible way that things could really, really descend into, into madness. Okay, final question. If you could solve just one mystery as a scientist, what would it be? Ooh, if I could solve one mystery. I mean, my personal one, the one that I would most be interested in, is to understand the moment at which the first moral matrix emerged. That is, um, you know, w when did the first sense of who we are and who is acting in conformity with it and who isn't, when did that emerge? You know, Franz Duwall says that chimpanzees have a bit of it. I'm, I'm not sure. So I'd love to go back. I'm fascinated by early human origins. And I, I think it's, you know, especially um, uh, what's it called, Homo heidelbergensis around, you know, a million BC or 800,000 BC. I, I'd love to 
understand that transition to really being human and having a moral order. So that's one. And then, uh, of course, you know, leftover from childhood, is there life on other planets? And what does it look like? And, uh, you know, all sorts of questions about the universe.